I'm, this is the longest intro we've ever done, I think. Uh, but I was just like, <laughs> I want to so see excited. how many of these I can get in. Okay. And welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast where everyone has a tight end. You could call us a special team, and you can always give us a quarterback on Patreon. But here's the kicker. Those of us who enjoy drugs might use it to buy a line man. Don't corner us about it. <laughs> oh my That's god. Okay. Wow. I, Honestly, I it's impressive. So little of that. I'm really excited to like learn more football words throughout the course of this episode. Yes. Well, I don't know if you will, honestly, but you won't learn about the players, which is mostly what Kellen was describing. They're the positions on the field. That makes sense. They're all words that I've heard before, but I'm like, what? What is that? (laughs) Anyway, uh, today we have Kellen, Jules, and Laura. And today we are talking about football. Um, For our non-U.S. listeners, we are, of course, referring to American football. And we're going to be focusing mostly on the NFL for the, you know, for the most part today. Um, There's definitely a lot to be said about college football and college sports in general, honestly. And yeah, I was... we should do it because there's yeah, so much think, with labor too. Yeah. And I, I know there's some really cool historians of sport that I think would be awesome to have on to kind of contextualize the history of college sports. Um, yeah. Cause they're, yeah, the labor issues are horrifying. Um, Truly. But yeah, if you're still listening, like I'm kind of imagining, I don't know, roughly 40% of our listeners are like, they're talking about football this week. This is extremely boring. I have no interest and (laughs) just tuned out. Um, Yeah, if you're still here, thank you. I'm actually very excited to get into this because I think American football is a really good entry point to talking about American culture writ large. Um, It's like it's an entree into gender and masculinity race, consumerism, corporate culture, homophobia, tribalism, violence, like probably a bunch of other things I didn't just list. Um, Yeah, exactly. Plus, if you're skeptical, when have we really ever steered you wrong before? Exactly. Um, Great point. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kick us off, like, I thought it might be good if we started each, you know, of us putting our cards on the table, sharing our relationship to or history with football. Coming out, if you will. <laughs> Coming out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I can go first. Um, I grew up watching football. And by that, I mean, I grew up like really watching football. Um, my dad, two of his brothers and their dad all played football at Clemson, which is a huge football school. Um, and for the real football heads out there. So this, again, will be roughly 1% of our audience that will re- <laughs> refer- recognize what I'm about to reference. Here's some trivia. Um, my uncle Mark was on the 1981 Clemson National Championship team and was roommates with Dwight Clark of San Francisco 49ers and the catch fame. Um Another fun fact, Powerful. after my parents divorced, my mom married Dwight Clark's ex-wife's brother. <laughs> the Very Dwight Clark conspiracy theories are going to begin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So he was like my uncle's roommate slash now his kids are my step cousins. Um, anyway, football. I grew up watching college football as well as NFL football. Um, My dad had season tickets to the Carolina Panthers games. I'm from Charlotte, which is where they play. So when I was a kid and also was still talking to my dad, I would go with him and the rest of my family like all the time. Um, By age 11, I was like super fluent in the sport. I knew all the rules, the terminology, the positions, the penalties, those hand gestures that refs use to signify each foul like you get the idea i was really into it um but as my relationship (laughs) as my relationship soured with my dad i got definitely like less attached to football so like i wasn't going to panthers games anymore um i definitely wasn't watching clemson games on tv and as time has gone on obviously we've also learned a lot more about cte which is a a chronic traumatic brain injury that's pretty common among football players which we'll definitely talk about later um 
And it really made me feel like whenever I was watching football, I was just watching young men like strip years off of their own lives. So um, that soured me on the game a fair amount and made it a lot more uncomfortable to watch. But like, I'll still go to a Super Bowl party or I'll watch it if it's on TV at someone else's apartment. And um, I've definitely found myself watching a couple of games this playoff season, even on my own. So like, maybe I am getting back into it. I don't know. I like, I'll just say that if you know the game well enough, it becomes incredibly engrossing and like super exciting to watch. Even if you don't have like a team that's playing, it is honestly like a good fucking game. Um, it's unfortunately also incredibly fucking violent and like, you can't really disentangle that from the rest of it. Um, but yeah, what about other folks? What is your relationship with football? Great question. First and foremost, I would like to say to any listeners out there who don't have a team that they're affiliated with, um, if they want to choose a team to root for, I would love to give you a quick pitch for rooting for the <laughs> Buffalo Bills. Um <clears throat> First of all, they are just the cutest boys. They have the cutest culture. Like when people, their friends on other teams will come into town, they'll treat them to wings. They'll they'll do all these cute things. Josh Allen, our massive quarterback, was like sitting on this dude's knee and they're just precious. They're precious angels and I love them. Okay, similarly to Kellen. I've been someone who grew up watching football every Sunday. Um, I definitely got out of practice of that. Um, sometime, you know, in my early 20s, I was like, fuck that, I'm not doing that. And then in my late 20s and early 30s, I've been like, oh, actually, I'm obsessed with the Buffalo Bills. Um, so when I was a kid, for me and my family and basically everyone I knew, that meant like, if you liked football, you were rooting for the Bills. Um, <laughs> again, uh, if you are not familiar, the Buffalo Bills have never won a Super Bowl. So we Nor have the Panthers. Go team. Go team. <laughs> we went four years in a row and lost every time. Talk about Go it. team. Talk about some cursed. Uh, so we are a major underdog in the NFL. Um, but I swear to you, next year is our year. So it's, gr- it's a great time to uh, jump on the bandwagon. Um Anyway, yeah, for for me, football is a very much a cultural experience. People in my city go all out for the bills. And living in a Rust Belt city means we are one of the most economically depressed cities in the country. So when we have something to be excited about, it truly lifts the entire energy of the city. Um, obviously, this is not the critique portion of the episode, which we will certainly be diving into soon. Um, but I will also say, as y'all know, I've been taking care of my grandma for a long time before she passed away. And my grandma was the biggest Bills fan I knew. She would like full out scream at the TV. And she was the one who got her husband, my grandpa, into the sport. And she was just like a general rebel rouser. So I love that. Yeah. I feel like this year in particular, since it was the first season since she passed, I felt even more compelled to watch the Bills and feel connected to her in that way. So go Bills. Oh, I love that. Um, it's so interesting to hear you both talk about this because I grew up with like no relationship with football whatsoever. Like, I think I knew it was a sport, but to be honest, like, I'm not even sure if I could say that with certainty. <laughs> um, I guess so. My family really didn't have a big focus on watching sports in my immediate family. Um, my dad really liked cycling, both doing it and watching it. So I watched a lot of the Tour de France growing up, but that was pretty much, yeah, it's very random, but that's pretty much the only like sporting event that I had ever watched before, like moving out of my parents' house for college. Um, Also the high school that I went to was very arts focused. So like there were sports teams, but they weren't a big focus and we didn't even have a football team. Um, The closest like connection that I had with football is that my mom's family is a University of Florida family. So there's a lot of love for their college football team, the Gators. Um, So I have like a lot of Gators merch. Like I still have a Gators hat that I wear all the time. But especially when I was growing up, I didn't like really connect it to the sport. It was just like stuff that was around and like the logo was always around. But I guess like 
people in my family were watching it, but it was never a family event. Like I never even remember seeing it on TV. Um, So I don't know. I think the most I've ever seen of a football game is in college. I went to um, part of the homecoming game because it was kind of like (laughs) a thing people did. And then we left because it was really cold and our team was doing really badly. So it was kind of sad. So that's and also football was not a big thing at the college I went to either like it was very possible to not really participate in it um so I I think I've been to more Columbia football than Jules has I'm Um, positive because I've been to one full game one of my friends who was also teaching there was like I want to go support my students so I like went with her to a full Columbia football game um so that's I, I don't know what that says, but I, I have been too. It was very <laughs> sad. <laughs> I, I, I never went to an Ithaca College Bombers. Uh, yes, their mascot is literally a bomb. And I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. They like did a thing to try to change it sometime when I was in school there. And, I, and like, I don't know. But I don't think they ended up changing it anyway. Yeah, college, well, to be fair, Ithaca is like D3. It's just a mess. But anyway, (laughs) anyway, we're going to get into some of the issues related to football, um, as well as some possible left arguments about it. And, you know, I just want us to be pretty clear up front that football is a sport built on violence, racism, economic exploitation of poor kids, corrupt deal making with local governments over stadiums, and a willingness to find it entertaining to watch people suffer brain damage. I mean, when you put it like that, um, as someone who does enjoy this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I thought it would make sense for us to start with you know, arguably the biggest problem with football. And like, as Laura just suggested, there are a lot of problems with football, but to me, it's what's maybe most immediately egregious is the damage it does to players' bodies and especially their brains. So of course we got to talk about CTE. Um, Laura, you want to kick us off there? Sure. Would love to. Um, Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. (laughs) Encephalopathy. Encephalopathy, I think is what it is. Perfect. Or CTE, which is how it will be referred to for the rest of the time, is a degenerative brain disease associated with repeated blows to the head. So this has been found in over 300 former NFL players' brains, including folks who have died in their 20s and 30s. It's only something that can be diagnosed after someone has died, and... It has been linked to a host of symptoms, including memory loss, depression, aggressive behavior, and suicidal thoughts. It's a progressive disease, and the symptoms can arise long after the hits to the head have ceased. Um, So, and as as someone who has had a lot of brain injuries, I've had six concussions, this shit freaks me the fuck out. Um, Speaking of concussions, you don't even need to have a diagnosed concussion to have CTE. More predictive, studies have shown, are the smaller repeated blows to the head that do not cause symptoms, known as subconcussive hits, aka basically all of football all the time. Yeah, I thought it might be good to talk like a little bit more about exactly what CTE actually does to a person. It's a lot worse than a concussion or even a series of concussions. So as Laura mentioned, like those aren't even prerequisites to getting it. Um, We've just just to inject a little history. uh, We've known about CTE since the 1920s, although obviously like back then it was less well understood, but like even a hundred years ago, we knew it came from repeated blows to the head and could cause serious cognitive decline. And back then, people commonly called it stuff like fist fighters dementia and boxers madness, which speaks, I think, both to the connection to sport and to its degenerative nature. Um, and like Laura mentioned, people who have, of course, after their deaths, been found to have had CTE during life have previously shown serious signs of progressive cognitive impairment, paranoia, problems with impulse control, as well as serious mood disorders, um, including really terrible problems with aggressiveness and anger. Um, CTE has been linked sort of tentatively, you know, the, the causation can't be proven to some really terrible acts of violence committed by former NFL players, which are 
really graphic, but I wanted to mention them because I think it's important for understanding what we're dealing with here. And if you don't want to hear about some murders, then just fast forward about 30 seconds, um, maybe a minute. The Probably the most famous case is that of Aaron Hernandez, who played for the Patriots. Um, while he was an active member of the team in 2015, he was arrested for and charged with the murder of a man named Odin Lloyd. Um, while he was on trial for, for Lloyd's murder, he was also charged with an earlier double homicide, which he was later acquitted of, but he was convicted of murdering Odin Lloyd. Um, he killed himself in his jail cell not long after in 2017. And an autopsy said, or, you know, found that he had stage three CTE. Um, there are only four stages and he was 27 years old. Um, more recently in 2021, and this one hits a little closer to home for me, Philip Adams, who is a cornerback in the NFL, shot and killed a whole family in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from. Um, he later killed himself. Um, investigators were not able to determine what link, if any, he had to the family, which, if I'm remembering correctly, were like a dentist, his wife, and his grandchildren, as well as just a handyman who happened to be working at the family's house at the time. Um, after Adams died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, an autopsy found that he had an incredibly advanced case of CTE, and he was 32 years old. Ugh, it's, it's so... Um scary and it's horrifying it's yeah. really it's really like some um sci-fi shit on some level just to like have a different personality like literally my doctors have sat me down to be like if you hit your head again you might have these things happen and you got to keep an eye out for them so like i can't even imagine like i'm like not participating in a contact sport <laughs> yeah yeah um so i also want to mention that um like, there's a lot of sexual violence that has happened um, related to NFL players and, like, f meaning the NFL players or uh, former NFL players are the perpetrators of this sexual violence. Um, you know, the, the most commonly known one is Ray Rice. That happened in 2014. I don't want to go into the details because it's too intense. But because, obviously, these people are still alive, we don't know if this is um, a potential reasoning for it. I Obviously, we cannot um, excuse people's violent behavior in that way. It's more just like the sport itself lends itself to the this degenerative disease that can lead to intense violence, both towards others and themselves, as we've talked about. So um, for many years, the NFL just straight up denied any connection between long-term brain damage and blows to the head until confronted with overwhelming scientific evidence. When a class action lawsuit brought by former players surfaced, the league acknowledged the connection and agreed to roughly a $1 billion settlement. In response to the rising prevalence of CTE, the NFL has developed intensive protocols for players who have or show signs of a head injury. The league installed a head injury spotter in the press boxes of all games, doctors and neurotrauma specialists on the sideline in the tent, and experts in neurocognitive testing in the locker room. The league has also strengthened rules against hitting quarterbacks and players who lower their helmets to initiate contact. Even still, head injuries are such an issue with this sport, it's kind of ridiculous that anyone is still playing. Yeah, I will say that my partner is an anarchist and hates rules. Uh, and even he is like, I would forbid my child from playing football. That is the one rule in this household. So it's, it is an open question. I mean, there is an obvious reason that people play. It's fun. And also you have the opportunity to make millions of dollars if right. you're successful. So yeah. anyway, continue, Laura. Yeah, there's definitely like this, uh, this, warped version of the american dream that's especially sold to poor young black poor, boys yeah, that exactly. they're like maybe you can get rich and take care of your whole family yeah but we'll exploit you the whole way and you probably won't make it anyway so this also re related to the nfl and racism which is like there's so much there who knows that we will be ever ever be able to cover it all but one thing to note is that in june of 2021 so that's right less than a year ago the nfl announced it would discontinue the use of race norming 
which is the practice of assuming a lower baseline of cognitive abilities in black players in legal settlements for concussion-related injuries. I know. It's ridiculous. When I was like, I was like, oh my Jesus Christ. For the past several years, black former professional football players led by former Pittsburgh Steelers Kevin Henry and Nadja Davenport had been speaking out against the practice. Henry, Davenport, and colleagues demonstrated that race norming was interfering with their ability to receive compensation and benefits from the settlement. Black retirees, who are overrepresented in the number of former players, staked legitimate claims about their impaired health after risking their minds and bodies for this freaking sport. The race norming practice limited black players' access to compensation they were rightfully owed. Black former players are automatically assumed to have started with worse cognitive functioning than white former players. As a result, if a black former player and a white former player receive the exact same raw scores on a battery of tests designed to measure their current cognitive functioning, the black player is presumed to have suffered less impairment, and he is therefore less likely to qualify for compensation, is what the lawsuit ended up recognizing this money has started to flow back into the hands of black players but there's still a long way to go yeah i think this really relates back to some issues that we've talked about in our episodes about medical racism as well um just the way that these norms of medical testing and treatment um especially within the legal system are really deeply rooted in racism and kind of like a culture of science that sees white bodies as the norm and the healthiest, but rather than looking at how the industry itself is impacting health, that assumption is kind of further built into these testing frameworks that continue to be used today. Um, Just a fun personal side note about uh, CTE. An acquaintance of mine has been... Yeah, just a little CTE side note. Um, so an acquaintance of mine has been working for the law firm that represents the NFL in its concussion litigation as like an entry level person, which I think was a good reminder to me of just like how huge the machine is that supports the NFL. Like they have one of the biggest law firms in the world on call for this, even still, and huge teams of people working on this, which is very disproportionate to the legal resources that the average person can afford, even like the average famous athlete. Um, But this person that I know started dating a scientist who was working on concussion and CTE research. And after they met, he decided to leave his job at that law firm. So in conclusion, the personal is political. Yeah. But it's also just kind of wild to me that this is a well-accepted medical thing that high impact to the head sports like football and boxing as well cause these chronic injuries and yet not a ton has actually changed in terms of how the sport is played um I think we're going to talk a little bit more later about football players as workers and sort of get into that side of things more but I guess I just wanted to call out that this is still a problem in other sports too like athletes destroying their bodies is basically part of the job description and I think to some extent that's just like part of playing a sport at a high level but I also think it's really important when players are speaking up about stuff like this to take it seriously even if it kind of interferes with a form of entertainment we might enjoy um I think sometimes it makes it easier for me and for others to enjoy other sports to be like oh well at least it's not as bad as football um but the truth is these problems do exist to different degrees with most intensive physical jobs um and I guess I just think it's worth thinking about this as a workplace injury issue specifically um more so than just like this unrelated thing that comes from a really unique type of job that we can't really do anything about. Um, I think like when we as leftists see like minors or sanitation workers, for example, destroying their bodies for work, we think that's very bad that they're coerced into being in that position by financial need. Um, And I just think we have to look at sports injuries Mm -hmm. that way too, especially because they don't just impact the richest, most famous players. They also impact people who are playing at much lower levels and yeah. like not getting as much clout and sort of ability to change things from that. 
Yeah. Or are playing at the college level and aren't getting paid at all. Yeah. So true. Well, so that was all very bad, but (laughs) here's an unrelated question that I have about football. So a while ago, my friend and I were at this bar that we're regulars at and it was football season. To be honest, I don't understand how football season even works. So I'm like, I think it was this football season, but I'm not sure. It might have been the last football season. Um, Anyway, they had a Green Bay Packers game on and we were kind of joking, like, we're sort of trying to make this spot into more of a gay bar. It is a gay bar, in my opinion. There's just too many straight people hanging out there. So (laughs) we were just kind of like, oh, no, football is going to attract more straight men to this bar. Um, And one of the bartenders who knows us actually, like, came out to where we were sitting at one point and was like, so sorry about the football, guys. Like, football is terrible. This is the only team I watch. It's the Green Bay Packers. And I was like, yeah, man, that's cool. Like, actually the one thing that I know about football is that the Packers are the only team in the NFL that's community owned, um, which from my understanding, isn't like super radical. It basically just means no one can hold too high a percentage of shares of the team, but you know, it's like one of the most socialist aspects of anything in the NFL. So I'm like, that's cool. That's fun. I'm glad that that is the team that this bar that I go to chose to put on. Um, But then the bartender was like, oh, and you know, obviously like there's all the gender issues too. And my friend and I were both kind of like, what? And like, we're both trans and we both think a lot about gender, but don't know anything about football. And we just kind of really like, I don't know, like, what does that mean? Can you be more specific? Um, He was busy. So we did not actually ask for any more information, but I guess I'm just curious if either of you have feelings about what someone might mean when they say football has gender issues. Like, is it just kind of the typical association between sports, fandom, culture, and toxic masculinity? Or do you think there's more going on that's like specific to football. Oh, yeah, I think that there's kind of both of those things. Um, You know, like I think when the early uh, 2020 Black Lives Matter uprisings were happening, um, one of the very common like videos that was floating around was like, because people were freaking out that riots were happening. Um, But the what was happening at those Black Lives Matter protests was like less aggressive than what would happen after a Philadelphia Eagles game. Um, They would be flipping cars and setting them on fire and not getting into the problems with the police state that these other things were. So I do think there is this like deep aggression that can come out um, that is its own thing. I also think it's really associated with alcohol. And I think that that Uh, is a substance that heightens aggression. Um, I will also say that, like, the gender issues I know, and there's, like, intense homophobia in the Buffalo Bills. It's, like, a problem, and I know that a lot of people don't, like, won't go to games because of, like, the homophobia that happens of the, like, from fans, from from people watching the Buffalo Mm. Bills. And one of the things that they do is they'll throw dildos into the opposing team's end zone as like a gotcha and why would you waste a perfectly good dildo on that (laughs) i know i honestly like i can't help but hear just like free dildos yeah bought me a dildo (laughs) thank you yeah i mean like and and obviously that's not like something that many people see as an overtly homophobic thing but like what they're insinuating by doing that is obviously like y'all are good exactly yeah, good one. Yeah, I I think I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about homophobia in the NFL within um, the teams themselves. Um, and so one of the most sort of famous examples, there are no openly gay players in the NFL. There have almost never been any. The first person to be openly gay um, in the NFL is a guy named Michael Sam. And he played... Um, football at Mizzou in college. He was the um, uh, SEC defensive player of the year. He was an all American. Like he was a really big, important player when he played in college, but 
in the season before he, or in the summer, I guess, before he was drafted before the draft and after he finished college, he came out as gay. And that was, he was the first person to ever do that. Um, he was, he was drafted. He was drafted in the seventh round of the, the, the NFL draft, which is pretty late. He was drafted by the Rams, which who cut him, um, and then was on the Dallas Cowboys practice squad before being cut from there as well. And there's a lot of controversy. Some people will say he actually wasn't good enough to make it in the pros. He was one of the best players in college at the time. Um, so a lot of people think that the reason he didn't have a professional career was because he came out as gay. Um, and just to mention a couple of other people who are notable, who are gay and are connected to the football world. Um, I mentioned Aaron Hernandez earlier, the murderer. Um, he was known sort of as being probably gay. Um, he, I mean, he had CTE. We know this. He also murdered some people. Uh, not great. Not a great guy, even regardless of sort of the damages. He, it seems like he would kind of sexually harass people in the locker room, but would also deny that he was gay. Um, but after his death, some recordings were released that revealed that he seemed to be struggling with not just homophobia, but a lot of self-hatred based on his own uh, homosexuality. Um, and then the last person that I wanted to bring up is somebody called Colton Underwood, who was The Bachelor. Um, little piece of information for our listeners. I will be starting a new podcast in a few months yeah. called Here to Make Comrades, which is a Bachelor podcast. Um, so this is just a little taste of the kind of commentary you might get there. <laughs> I feel that Amazing. probably the number of our listeners who listen to football is roughly equivalent to the number of, or watch football uh, is probably equivalent to the number of our listeners who watch the bachelor, not a huge crossover. It is what it is. Um, Colton Underwood <laughs> played football in college and I believe was also on practice squad. So he didn't, or maybe played a few games in the pros, but he um, became the bachelor as sort of this all American blonde, like big, you know, white football boy, um, and ended up, uh, becoming the bachelor picking his, um, you know, the, you know, pick somebody they didn't get engaged, but they continued to date. She broke up with him. He ended up stalking her. Um, he's like a bad dude. He, she has a restraining order against him. Anyway, then he came out as gay. Seems like he was like, I have, this is the last thing I have to prove to myself that I'm gay. So I'm going to keep chasing it, even though she like, doesn't want to be with me, whatever. Um, not to psychoanalyze Colton Underwood, but he has talked a lot publicly about how difficult it was for him to come to terms with being gay because he was so deeply imbricated in the culture of football in the United States. And so these are just a couple of examples. I don't have anything negative to say about Michael Sam. As far as I know, he's a good guy. Don't quote me on it because I don't know that much about him. And Hernandez and Colton Underwood, not great dudes. But I do think that they are examples of their experiences are examples of how deeply homophobic the culture of football, whether on the collegiate or the professional level, tends to be. And so that is one of what I, when I think of gender problems in the NFL, that is one of the big things that I think of. What you're saying reminds me of like the iconic queer film, but I'm a cheerleader because like it's yeah. the, for the opposite or for the, uh, for one of the other genders, right? It's like, you know, this they're cheerleaders for a football team. There's this very yeah. like all American vibe. And when she's coming to term with her sexuality, she's like, but I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Similar vibes. We love to see it. Um, okay. So now we're going to talk about, um, you know, the Colin Kaepernick take a knee shit. Uh, <laughs> so at an NFL preseason game on August 26th, 2016, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick remained seated as other players stood to observe the national anthem. This simple action caused a whole lot of fuckery within the NFL. When he continued to sit despite wearing his uniform for the third preseason game against the Green Bay Packers, only a single reporter noticed. Asked about it after the game, Kaepernick responded, quote, <clears throat> I'm not going to stand up and show pride in a flag 
for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave for getting away with murder, end quote. So this quickly switched to taking a knee because apparently kneeling is more in line with honoring the military. I don't fucking know. Anyway, this grew and many players started to kneel during the anthem. Um, He never again played after that season. Um, The NFL essentially blackballed him from playing in the league. So one thing I'd like to talk about as it relates to the whole Colin Kaepernick situation is that sports have long been one way for athletes, particularly black athletes, to use their power. As we talked about on, I believe, the summer of 1968 episode, black Olympians raised their fist for civil rights, and that is still an image we see regularly. Cullen was continuing in that legacy by trying to use his power to draw attention to the absolute fuckery of violence against black people in this country. Um, And so this is kind of random, but the one thing that came has come out of that whole situation, which is honestly hilarious to me, um, because it's just neoliberalism doing its fucking thing once again. Now all the players have little sayings on the back of their helmets. <laughs> My team's quarterback. Like social justice sayings. Yes. My team's QB, the angel himself, Josh Allen, has stop hate on the back of his helmet. Like, okay, I, I will. I'll jump right on it. It's just like funny virtue signaling. And I think it just shows how capitalism tries to mold itself into the concerns of society in really insidious ways. Yeah, like the there's a whole bunch of sayings like different people have you can pick clearly from like a, a whole host of different ones that you put on the back of your helmet to like spread awareness or whatever. My favorite one that players can choose to put on their helmets just says in all caps, be love. Like, <laughs> what the fuck does that even mean? Like, okay, guys, we, you know, pack it up. We solved racism. We can all just be love and it's fine. Unbelievable. It's incredible. It's it's truly something else. <laughs> so um, we wanted to talk about some other issues relating to racism within the NFL. Again, this is not going to be a comprehensive understanding of the ways racism shows up in the NFL. Um, but so basically, this is somewhat breaking news. Um, it came out a couple days ago, but still very recent and hot off the press. Uh, news on the continued racism in the NFL. Oh, there's still racism. (laughs) Sounds like somebody woke up and forgot to be love this morning. Yeah, you hate to see it. They needed to read that helmet. (laughs) (laughs) So former Miami head coach Brian Flores is suing the NFL and three of its teams, the Broncos, the Dolphins, and the Giants, alleging a pattern of racist hiring practices by the league and racial discrimination during the interview process with Denver and New York, as well as during his tenure with Miami. The lawsuit filed Tuesday, February 1st in Manhattan Federal Court sought class action status and unspecified damages from the league, the three teams, and unidentified individuals. Flores, who is black, was fired last month by Miami after leading the Dolphins to a 24-25 record over three years. Flores's lawsuit alleges that the league has discriminated against Flores and other black coaches for racial reasons, denying them positions as head coaches, offensive and defensive coordinators, and quarterbacks coaches, as well as general managers. It was time to stop being quiet about the injustices that are happening, Flores' team said. This was long overdue. There's plenty of racism that still needs to be exposed. Also, a key component of this lawsuit is about how the Dolphins owner told him to tank games so that they could get better draft picks for next season. The owner told him he would pay him $100,000 per loss. Wow. And after the Flores lawsuit came out, Former Cleveland Browns coach Hugh Jackson alleged he was also given rewards for losing games. Seems like an excuse for why the Browns are so bad to me. But uh, okay. All right, Hugh. Of course, the NFL is denying these claims, um, but it's no surprise that black coaches and players have been talking about the systemic racism in this system as well as the general corruption throughout the NFL. 
And um, because we've mostly been focusing on anti-black racism within the NFL, I also want to talk about the way in which Native communities have been affected by the NFL. So for 17 years, a group called Not In Our Honor has called on the Kansas City Chiefs to drop their names, to drop their name and abandon decades-old game day rituals based on Native symbols and traditions. This campaign, which is supported by several national advocacy groups, has gone largely unheeded. In August of 2020, the Chiefs banned fans from wearing headdresses and American Indian-themed face paint to games at Arrowhead Stadium. (laughs) Sorry, it's just, it's ridiculous. So fucked up. It also pledged to review the Arrowhead chop that accompanies the deafening war chant that echoes through the stands at the notoriously loud venue. The changes, the chief said in a statement, were the result of six years of dialogue with local leaders from diverse Native backgrounds. But anyone who has watched any Kansas City games played in their home stadium knows and can see that the Airhead Chop and racist-as-fuck chants are still alive and well. Yeah. To many Native activists, these small measures are a far cry from the change they seek, an end to the chief's name and all Indian-derived imagery and rituals. So... For those who don't know, the Washington football team owner um, decided in July 2020 to drop its previous name, um, which is a really fucked up term. Um, It's a racial slur. Yeah. um, And so that was a huge victory for Native activists, though obviously it was only a small step in the right direction. Crystal Echo Hawk, the founder and executive director of Illumi Native, uh, an Oklahoma-based company that works to elevate Native voices and combat traditions and tropes that fuel racism and discrimination, including team nicknames and imagery, said, quote, Imagine it is your culture and things that are sacred to you are being mimicked and mocked. That's what our children and our people go through. The hypocrisy of the NFL and all the teams saying they're, they're taking a stand against racism, enough is enough, end quote. Yeah, it's just like such a joke. Like I watched one of the Chiefs um, playoff games and like they had all the end hate, be love shit on their helmets. And it's like, okay, but you also have an arrowhead on your helmet. Like what's going on here? Um, Exactly. Anyway, another big thing you'll notice if you attend an NFL game or if you watch one on TV is that they are all about the troops. Um, so we also wanted to talk about some of the like militarism and patriotism that's wrapped up in the NFL. And I just wanted to say that we're going to not spend a whole lot of time on this, but citations needed has a full episode on the issue. So if you're interested in the ties between the military and the NFL, definitely check that out. Um, and shout out to friend of the pod Mel who sent me the app. Um, thank you for that. So like, just to start out with, obviously every NFL game starts with the national anthem. Um, as Laura brought up earlier, that was obviously the source of a match- massive controversy when uh, Colin Kaepernick refused to stand. Um, but there's also just a lot of like aggressive militarism that's completely normalized, whether it's like announcers just like demanding standing ovations for members of the armed forces before games, which like is real and is stuff that I that happened at the Panthers I went to during Panthers games I went to uh during the height of the Iraq war or like you know like jet flyovers which again are like fucking terrifying if you're in the city but forget that a football game is happening um there's like any number of other visuals and practices that glorify the military and by extension American imperialism whether it's like you know halftime shows that feature um you know uh the thing where you twirl the guns around like it's just there's a lot there's a lot going on and another thing that's worth pointing out is that the armed forces also advertise heavily during football games um and we don't have a whole lot of time left in this episode so we're not even going to get into the like shit show that is the super bowl and all the advertisements and consumerism that you know plays out there the literal billions of dollars that are spent on uh vacuous nothingness um but anyway the armed forces as i said do a lot of advertising um they're one of the main advertisers during football games and it's not just for recruitment either there's one of the things that came to mind as I was writing this, because I did watch a couple of football games, either for research or for fun, I'll let you decide, um, 
is there's this commercial on right now that has Rob Gronkowski, who's like a famous football player. Um, and he and the commercial is trying to get USAA insurance, but it's only for armed service members and their families. And like, not even the famous Gronk can get in on the deal. And like, that's the, the whole thing is just like, here's something special that only pertains to the armed forces, basically. Uh, yeah, fun fact, Gronk is from a suburb of Buffalo, and all I can hear on those USAA <laughs> commercials is this hard A Buffalo accent. He's like, ah, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> very, very Buffalo. It's a very oh distinctive accent. Uh, yes. Um, I also want to say, in addition to the heavy military presence that Kellen was just talking about, um, most games have a militarized police as well. Um, when I went to a game a few years ago, there was a literal tank um, outside. Um, Love to and see it. It was really messed up and really terrifying. Yeah. And I, I would just add, like, there's a ton of security theater, too, at NFL games. You have to go through metal detectors. You have to have your bag searched. Um, and this is true for a lot of sports games. But I think it's worth noting that events like this play a big part in normalizing the security state in our day to day lives. Totally. So we're switching gears slightly um, to a more uh, economic Thing with the NFL, but um, so the NFL has nonprofit status, and we're going to talk about it, but there's some other stuff too. So in 1961, the NFL gained an antitrust exemption. Lobbyists persuaded Congress to pass a law that allowed the NFL to circumvent antitrust laws and sell TV rights collectively to the highest bidder. In effect, the NFL became a legal monopoly. A few years later, lawmakers cut a deal with the league that granted it tax-exempt status. I he literally, I didn't know this. Like, I didn't know that the NFL as a whole doesn't pay taxes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then it, you know, it enshrines, um, it enshrines a multi-billion-dollar business as a nonprofit. Um, so, like. Most effective monopolies, the NFL has leveraged its power at the expense of taxpayers, who supply nine or sorry, who supply seventy percent of the funding for NFL stadiums, along with millions in infrastructure, according to Judith Long, a professor of urban planning at Harvard University. They consistently get away with, quote, publicly funded stadiums. And team owners, so the teams themselves are private entities, but Team owners receive lucrative inducement payments to help keep them from moving their franchises to other cities. So billionaires shaking down cities and states for public money, it's crony capitalism at its best. Yeah, um, and I think that's a good segue to the final thing that we wanted to bring up, which is the relationship between capital and labor in the NFL. And in, in other words, the relationship between the owners and the players. And some people might be like, Tom Brady doesn't count as a worker. He's a multimillionaire married to a supermodel. And also I hate him, which fair. Extremely um, fair and valid opinion. <laughs> um, but it's worth noting, like most NFL players aren't Tom Brady and they're not like Patrick Mahomes, who I learned in researching for this episode. He's the Chiefs quarterback. He is the highest paid NFL player at $45 million per year. Wowie. Um, but again, most players are not these guys. They um, are making generally they are there is a floor um, to what people who play in actual games, not the practice squad, but actual like people who play in the games are paid, which they do make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So these people are not, you know, poor while they're playing football. Um, but it's worth noting that they don't tend to play for very long. The average player only lasts three years in the NFL. And if you're getting tackled a lot, uh, that number goes down. So running backs on average only last two and a half years and receivers on average last just over two years. Um, and then compare this to how much owners make off the teams, which is like harder to ascertain, but estimates I found online range from between 20 million to over a hundred million dollars per year. Um, and it's also worth considering how rich the owners are. So like, the wealthiest owner in the NFL is actually the owner of my hometown team, the Carolina Panthers, and he is worth $13 billion. And it's one of the top Jesus. 50th richest, 50 richest people in the United States. 
Um, just a fun fact. He took over the team a few years ago and the previous owner, Jerry Richardson, was caught in a sex abuse scandal. And we had to take the statue of Jerry Richardson down and everything. Whole, whole big, whole big thing. He he got, uh, he said he was going to be canceled and me too'd. Um, <laughs> anyway, NFL players are for sure paid way more than the average member of the working class. Um, but you know, as we've talked about, there's enormous wear and tear on their bodies and their brains. Their careers are incredibly precarious. They, again, as we've discussed, have faced or or do face racism and discrimination if they're black or brown players. And there's more, like, I would argue that they're definitely being exploited. And that's for sure the case when you think about the fact the NFL made roughly $10 billion in revenue last year. Um, and how much of that actually goes to the workers? And by that, I mean the players, you know, but that's also to say nothing of the staff that runs the stadium, serves concessions, cleans the bathrooms, brings the players water, cuts the grass, and generally keeps the show running. So we talked at the beginning of the episode about the ways that football is sort of a microcosm of American society writ large. And again, we have this, you know, bourgeois class that owns the teams, that makes incredible money. We have the league that is engaged in this sort of insane crony capitalism deal that's enabled by the U.S. government. You have the players that are, you could argue, potentially like a kind of petite bourgeois class or are just a, you know, relatively well-paid working class, but are extremely precarious in a number of ways. And then you have this, you know, underclass that makes everything function behind the scenes that is paid horrendously. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition, you know, when we're thinking about things that really should change in football, that is absolutely one of them. Um, And, you know, the Green Bay Packers, despite having Aaron Rodgers known anti-vaxxer and Shailene Woody husband um, as their quarterback are collectively owned, as Jules mentioned. And that is one example of a potential way forward, although obviously a lot more needs to to be done and needs to change in the NFL. Hell yeah. Um, Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to us rant about football. And thank you to my co-hosts for teaching me something about football today. Um, if you'd like to support this educational project and many others, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, we have a discord that you can join if you give us some money there and reading groups, movie nights, some fun things coming up. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee, send us an email season of the bee at gmail.com and rate review, subscribe wherever you're listening to us. I think that's it. We did it. Okay, love you. Love Love you all. Bye. Season of the Bitch.